welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Good evening to all. Looks like it's cold over there. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad that I'm glad to be here. They always say that um, if you come from more than 100 miles and carry a suitcase and wear a jacket, you must be a consultant. Well, I'm not wearing a jacket. And I don't have a suitcase, but I'm coming from more than 100 miles. I'm over in Portland, Oregon. My name is Kent. I'm a grateful recovered sexaholic. Uh, sobriety date of October 10, 2011. And um, I am powerless over lust. The nature of my addiction is using and abusing boys and men physically, emotionally, and spiritually from the age of eight until I was 53 and entered the program of recovery where I got sober accepted uh, God, uh, power greater than myself, which has restored me to sanity and relieved me of the obsession to lust. And so I've um, been relieved and uh, overcome a hopeless state of mind and body, not on my own, own, but by the grace of God. Um, My story is uh, summed up with the nature of my addiction. I'm not powerless over my actions. I chose my actions. Actually, my lust chose my actions. And that's one of the things about uh, Sexaholics Anonymous that I've discovered is that it's not my actions I'm powerless over, it's lust I'm powerless over. If I don't face the fact that I'm powerless over lust, lust will choose my actions. And I think in my brain that those actions are really choices that I've made. When it started at the age of eight, masturbating in front of a, a mirror, and I thought that was a lot of fun. It gave me a lot of thrills. And I shared it with the boy up the street and And together we had a lot of fun with other kids in the neighborhood. And that progressed until uh, I was about 13 years old. And suddenly the boys in my town were starting to get interested in girls. And they weren't so much interested in playing around, as I called it. And I realized that there was something different with me. And so all of my life I've always felt different. And I've always felt like there's something that I've had to hide throughout high school. I obviously found other kids who were similarly oriented sexually, and and we experimented and had a lot of fun. But at the age of 15, I found a guy who was 32, so or 31, I guess, 16 years my senior, uh, opened my eyes to the whole world of uh, of sexual. Um, uh, experimentation and, and orientation. And at the age of 18, well, somewhere in that range, my um, elder brother, my middle brother, exposed me to the family for having this um, sexual intercourse with this older guy. And all hell broke loose, as one might imagine. Um, and of course, I told them, lied through my teeth, read lied. I told them that I had broken that off. And of course, I hadn't. And at the age of 18, I told them what they could do with themselves. And I ran off with this guy to San Francisco. And for me, that was San Francisco in 1976. So it was a heyday of uh, the gay coming out after the whole 
Stonehenge uh, riots in 1969 and a whole bunch of uh, experimentations in open sexuality and the middle of the sexual revolution. It was a great time to be 18 years old, quite frankly. And I was a center of attention. It was exactly what I always wanted to be. Um, over the course of a couple of years, I got tired of that, went back to my family, um, told them I wasn't going to do it anymore, lied again, and uh, was off and running in college. So uh, I flunked out of two colleges, and that second college I was in, I met a gal who, um, you know, I've read enough of, of pornography, and I've seen enough of pornography, and I've, I've known enough about uh, sex and sexuality that I thought it would be kind of interesting. So she and I ended up going to bed together. You know, she was interested in the same guy I was interested in, and I told her so, and we laughed, and we went to lunch, and we ended up in bed together. I mean, it was 1979. What else do you do? That's how you make friends. You go to bed with them. That was how I lived my life. There really wasn't any connection with human beings, not with family, not with uh, friends, not with anybody, except through drugs or sex. And that's the way that my life ran. Again, I didn't realize that I was being driven by an ism. It's the same ism for sexaholism as it is for alcoholism or uh, narcoholism or whatever you want to call it. It's the same ism. It's that same hollowness in the soul that is trying to be, that I'm trying to fill. I'm trying to fill. And as long as I was trying to fill it, I filled it with lust because lust was there. It was available. It was something I could always go to. And uh, so we ended up getting married. Why not? I mean, we were compatible sexually. She knew all about me. She knew about my sexual uh, proclivities with men. And that was, you know, as she called it, that's just the 1%. You'll have 99% of somebody and that's just 1%. You know, you can live with that. But that 1% became the monster in the room. It's the elephant that under the carpet, as so we say. Uh, you know, it's that one thing that you can't ignore. You keep tripping over it, and it's always there, and it can never go away, and you just don't want it to be invading the family. And as it was, um, we ended up getting pregnant. We were, we were very... <laughs> Pick up the clue phone, and that's exactly about what it should have been. We should have picked up the clue phone years ago. We should have been able to um, say, wait a minute, this is not working. But we never did. We kept saying, we love each other so much. This is really, you know, you're the person I really love. Sex with those other guys, that's just sex. You are love. At least that's what I kept telling her. Uh, sex with her was different, but it wasn't necessarily uh, an involved state of spirituality. Um, so this went on for years. Uh, she, my drinking took off when I was in college, but it stopped pretty much for about 20 years. We had a child, um, and my going out, you know, my alcoholism was really fueled by lustaholism, sexaholism, and my lust was just going to town. I took a hiatus. I, I told her I would not have sex outside of the marriage, for, and I didn't for about eight years. I had a lot of sex inside the marriage, 
had a lot of sex by myself, had a lot of sex with men's catalogs, and I'm talking about catalogs of men modeling clothes, not of women, right? So I had a lot of, I had a lot of masturbation, a lot of pornography, a lot of porn in my head, a lot of action in my head, and finally we started our own business, and I started traveling, voila, guess what came with me when I was traveling? Well, I know where the gay bars are. I can go out and find people. And I did. And that just started a snowball effect for um, 20 years of just hell going out, coming back in, going out, coming back in. And I was in a desperate place in the mid 2000s. All I could, I remember writing in my journal. Um, gosh, I just want to feel again. I just want to feel. Please, God, let me just feel again. Because I loved my wife. I loved our son. But I, I, it's not who I am. Let me be human. Let me be who I really am. And I kept trying to manage that. The more I managed it, the worse it got. And by 2011... I was done. I just couldn't live this life anymore. I had left her several times or tried to leave her several times. And each time we tried something new. We tried her being in control. We tried uh, BD and S&M clubs. We tried um, uh, engaging other people in our relationship. We tried a lot of different things and none of it satisfied me. Nothing ever satisfied. Nothing was good enough. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get it right enough. I couldn't do the right things. I couldn't be right with myself in the way that I was living. And I typed in sex addiction. I just, something just came to me and said sex addiction. I was looking for about a week ahead. You know, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And Sexaholics Anonymous popped up. My first meeting was Monday. October 10th, 2011, and I walked through the doors late, of course, and um, I haven't looked back. That's the first day that I was truly honest with a couple of other people about sexually acting out, and uh, I felt at home. Immediately, I felt at home. The next day, my wife was coming home from visiting her father and mother at the time. No, her mother had passed away, so it was just her father. She would go back and take care of him for three weeks at a time. And I couldn't tell her that I had gone to a meeting. And it took me another week to actually tell her. And when I told her I had to go to a meeting because I was going nuts, she said, thank you. Thank you. And I was like, okay. And then she said, is there something for me? And I didn't tell her then, but I told her years later, thank you. <laughs> thank you for doing your program. And, um, you know, we've been on this journey for eight years now, a little over eight years, and it's better today than it has ever been. We are closer today than we have ever been. And I'm grateful today, unlike I have ever been. And I, am, uh, I owe it to the tools of the program. Tool number one, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. See, I'm a big book thumper. I'm a registered big book thumper. <laughs> the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't get that when I got into this program. I got a lot of 
go to meetings, keep coming back, you know, do the next right thing, uh, all of that kind of stuff, which is good and it's honest and it's honorable and it has very little practical use to me as a newbie. When I was new in the program, I needed to know what can I do. So the other things that I was told to do, and I followed the directions. Number one, follow directions. Number two, make phone calls. Why? Because we live in isolation. I lived in isolation in my head. I lived in, I'm a gregarious person. I like to be around people. We have a lot of clients. Nobody knew anything about what was going on in our life. And it is a deadly disease. It's a place where I can die surrounded by people. And that's one of the strange things about our disease. So make the phone calls, get to meetings. I'm not going to learn to be sober in meetings. I'm going to learn something in meetings. And every something that I add to my toolkit is something that I can pull out later listen to my sponsor and, and do what my sponsor says and um, do the work, do the work. There are many different uh, approaches to doing the work. My approach is do it as quickly and as thoroughly as you can do it. Um, I didn't follow that advice. Well, I, didn't, I wasn't given that advice to begin with, and I wish I had been. There were a number of close calls in the first year and a half of, of me losing my sobriety. And I wanted to. Notice I said I wanted to. In fact, I see and I knew then that it really wasn't me wanting to, that it was something else driving me to it. What I really wanted was to stay connected with the program and stay connected with what I was developing as uh, a relationship with a higher power. So <clears throat> there are uh, another pro. I love your format. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for not, for, for having a format that is different than the white book format. I think it's fantastic. And the fact that you read step zero is awesome. That's one of the great tools at your disposal. I think the key to step zero um, is on page 64, and that is we stop. We stop. We stop practicing our compulsion in all of its forms. That's what it tells us. We can't be sober in one area while acting out in another. This one drove me nuts for a long time because I kept drinking. And um, although I stayed sober sexually, uh, that alcohol started ramping up. When I stopped acting out, the alcohol started ramping up. I'm now sober from alcohol, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm recovered from both alcohol and lust, and I'm more than, more than just grateful for that. I'll never be sufficiently grateful. But uh, there can be no relief from obsession or lust while practicing the, the acts of lust in any form. The other thing is back there in the 18-wheeler, in those first three areas, and I don't remember which ones they are, but uh, they also refer back to this exact same uh, concept. And... One of the things was stop feeding the obsession. Number two in the 18-wheeler, stop feeding the obsession. This meant eliminating from what was under my control all printed and visual materials and other symbols of my tyranny. I'm not powerless over my actions. 
those are a result of my powerlessness over my lust. I can't control my lust. If I have the mistaken belief that I can go on and start looking for tattoos that will fit my body the way that I want them to fit, I'm going to be lusting. And it will not take very long. There are a lot of good-looking guys with great tattoos on different parts of their body, and I'm going to come searching for them. I'm not powerless over my actions. I can take that action, but I'm not taking it. Lust is taking it. And I use tattoos because uh, there was a point about four years into my sobriety that I wanted to get a tattoo. I wanted a tattoo on my left side and one on my right side. The one on the right side, I wanted it to be a phoenix rising up. You know, it's me emerging, the real me emerging with the help of God coming back to life. And on the left side, it was the old me. Uh, and it was a particular image that I had seen in my acting out career of a man who was very forlorn looking down at himself in a mirror called Narcissus, right? And all I could think of was I, I wanted to find that because I, I had destroyed all of, my, all of my pornography and all of my pictures and everything out there. I had gotten rid of all of that stuff. And I wanted to find that. And over the course of about two and a half days, I kept trying to look for limit my search so I didn't, you know, get, oh, 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 some of those naked pictures. Oh, I didn't want those make naked pictures. Really, kind of not, kind of not want those naked pictures, you know? And, and I realized this is insanity. And I turned back to the white book. I turned back to uh, overcoming my obsession with lust. It's like, oh, right. I'm feeding my lust is grazing. My lust is grazing. Am I going to keep it in the pasture with me? Or am I going to ask God to set me loose from it? So the only thing that I can make a decision on is what I'm willing to give up today. What am I willing to give up today? And I'll wrap up here with a little story, eight years into sobriety. My wife and I have an RV. We're going to be retiring here in a few months and she wants to travel. And um, she claims that I do too much service work, that I sponsor too many people, that I do too much in the program, that I'm not present enough. And that's something that my sponsor uh, shares with me. You know, if, if we're hearing that from our spouses and they're probably right. And uh, we need to be present for our spouse. And he's absolutely right on that. I um, <clears throat> had a, I go to AA meetings and I had a guy in there who was just coming back from a 10 year run. And he and I, I said, well, do you want to go and talk after the meeting? Cause he was very, he's moving into a sober living house. He's got a curfews and all this, all this stuff's coming down court order, et cetera. And, um, I called my wife and said, I'm going to be late coming home from the meeting. I'm going to go out and we're going to grab a coffee with this guy. And she said, don't sponsor anyone. <laughs> and I was like, what, 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 what do you mean? Don't sponsor anybody. This is how I stay alive. I didn't say this to her. This is what's going through my brain. I've learned enough to let the blood run down my cheeks. I'm better off that way than to open my mouth. Right. And um, so he and I talked, and I let him know I probably can't sponsor him, but I'll help him find a sponsor, and, and all that was fine. 
Saturday, she was, um, eh, was kind of edgy on me and not particularly because I wasn't being as present as she wanted me to be because my brain was going, how can I, how can I let go of this and give this to you, God, so that, God, you can let me sponsor this person? <laughs> Bing! Crazies! Crazies! I may be recovered, but that doesn't mean that I'm cured. I will never be cured. And by Saturday night, she was just, just the tone of her, the sound of her voice was enough to make me just, yeah! I was about, as I said to somebody, it was like molten lava, ready to explode. I just, nah! Uh, if I sit here any longer, I'm going to explode. So I just said to her, because she was on the phone talking to one of her sponsees or another fellow in her program, she doesn't see all the times that she does it, and it doesn't bother me. You know, that's kind of where my brain was. And I said, I'm going to go to a meeting. You're going to go what? I'm going to go to the AA meeting, dear, right down the road here. I'll be back after 9 o'clock. And she got kind of sullen about it. And I said, good night. I'll see you in a bit. And you know what? When you're feeling that way, it is almost without exception that God will answer you if you'll shut up and listen. And the guy led with the bottom of page 82 to the top of page 83, which leads us into the ninth step promises. You know, A, says the farmer coming out of his cellar, uh, after the cyclone, say, uh, I don't see anything the matter here, Ma. The wind stopped blowing. Ain't it grand? And uh, yes, there's a long period of reconstruction ahead. Bam! That smacked me. Long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. Um, uh, regarding your family, though their defects may be glaring, the chances are that our own actions may be partly responsible. Yep, that's probably true. We ask our creators to show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. They will change in time. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. When, God... When are you going to change her? <laughs> when <laughs> change? Oh, wait. Repeat. There is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. They will change in time. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. You know what, Kent? She's been going to these meetings, and she's a heck of a lot better and stronger than she was eight years ago. Who am I to say she's not doing it right? And it was like uh, just a smack across the side of the head. The keys to recovery for me are surrender, listening to those who all have recovery, and then segregating out those who are recovered from those who are sober, because those are two different states of mind. Sober is on page 52 of the big book. Recovery is on page 83 of the big book. And that's what we want to do is we want to know how does God speak to us? So meditation, prayer, and listening to others is how uh, are the keys to recovery for me today. In the early days, it was just shut up and do the work. Do what you're told to do. Just as one last little vignette, uh, then I'll turn it back over to Daniel. When I was, uh, oh, just about, just 
under a year of recovery. No, I, no, it may not have even been that long. I don't know. It may have been six months in the program. I have a very dear friend who also knows my wife, and they're very good friends, uh, up in Seattle. And she's been sober in AA now 34 years, but back then, do the math, 26 years back then. And um, she invited me to join her in a big book study group uh, that they have on Sunday nights. And I said, because I was up there doing some work. And uh, I said, oh, that'd be great. And I called my wife and I said, I would do that. And my wife just went, bing, not because it's a woman, but because all of her sponsees are gay, gay men. Uh, she somehow just really naturally has gravitated towards the gay culture up there. And I just thought, oh, a big book study group with Paula, that's great. I love Paula, and, you know, I trust her. My wife thought, oh, my husband's going to be surrounded by gay men. Oh! <laughs> like, I was, what? What? What's, what could possibly go wrong here? <laughs> and uh, so I talked to my sponsor, and he said, yeah, you probably shouldn't go. I said, but it's a big book study group. Yeah, but your wife is uncomfortable. What is this, her program or mine? Yep. <laughs> That's right. So as my sponsor says, and Daniel's heard it, I know, because he knows the same person. I, uh, God and step work first, family second, everything else third. And that's what I still try to do. And today I'm going to write down all of the service work that I do do, and I do a lot of service work. That's a great way to stay sober, by the way. It's also a way, great way to make your spouse get a little pissed off at you, but do it anyway and <laughs> stay sober. God and self work first. I'm going to write down all the service work I do do and then start beginning to say where, what's service work and what's everything else. So, all right, that's enough out of me. I've gone my half hour, almost half hour. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so it's, it's now time for questions. Um, okay. um, could you share with us what your daily schedule, you know, daily program steps, practices look like on a regular day? Great. Thanks, Daniel. Um, first thing, get up and pee. Then <laughs> go downstairs and pray. And I pray a modification of uh, pages 86 and 87 out of the big book. I pray the morning meditation prayers. I ask God, I also ask God to watch over those who are lost, sick, and dying, that they might find their way to him. Um, and I name certain people, and I thank God for all the blessings that he gives. So I pray to God first, um, and I I. I surrender my character defects. I add character defects to that specific character defects every single day so that I can be reminded that I am not in my brain, that I am in God's hands. Then I sit quietly in some meditative stance for anywhere from 20 minutes to 40 minutes if I can, if I have the time. Then I get up and I make my tea, coffee, shower, shave, go to work if I work, um, etc. <clears throat> but during the day, I'll get calls. If I can take a call, I'll, t I'll take a call. That's everything else, by the way. God and separate first, family second, everything else third. If I can take a call without interrupting work, I'll do that. 
<clears throat> but if I can't, well, God invented voicemail for a reason. So I'll listen to that. And then I'll kill them back. And then sometime during the day, if yeah, we've arranged it, I'll probably work with the sponsee, usually via phone. Um, or if uh, I'm on a drive and, we, and I'm stopping in their town, I'll work with them there. And then in the evenings, I'll either have time with my wife or I'll go to a meeting. I'm thinking about it, and I'm guessing I probably go to seven or eight meetings a week. And I probably work with five sponsees actively every week. And um, uh, so, oh, oh, then in the evening, I read some meditative material. I post in a WhatsApp group. Um, and sometimes I'll copy that into other WhatsApp groups. And then I'll go through an evening inventory checklist. Uh, not a checklist, but a writing exercise. I'm a writer. I like to write uh, of how the day went. Or I will write in my journal because I journal every day. And now I'm journaling every evening and I write in my journal. That has morphed over the years, but it's still pretty much the same. An anchor in the morning and an anchor in the evening to get right with and stay with God. And then everything else has to fall in between that. And I dare say, sometimes I don't pay enough attention to my wife, but I'm working on it. Thank you. Um, what do you say to uh, your sponsors that are chronically slipping? What kind well, of tools do you have and how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, case by case basis. Um, my sponsor says he never, he never fires anybody. They fire themselves. Somebody who's a chronic slipper will eventually slip away because they're not ready to give it up. We talk about all the same things that uh, any sponsor or sponsor might talk about. Uh, chronic slipping is an unwillingness to be willing. And uh, chronic slipping is willfulness, not willingness. And that um, we only have to be sober for an hour and then call me in an hour and see if you want to be sober or call somebody else in an hour and want to be sober again. Put in your bookends. If you're going to go somewhere or do something, call somebody first. And then when you're done with that, call and be honest about it. Whenever somebody, a sponsor calls and I haven't heard from them for a few days, I'll always ask, so what's on your mind that you don't want to tell me? And uh, usually there's something that they haven't told me. Uh, we talk about what has happened over the past couple of weeks because slips don't happen, they brew. And what's happening is we're not dealing with something between our ears. We're trying, new phrase, we're trying to deal with something between our ears. We're not letting go of this. Um, so it's a matter of a practice, and it's also a matter of patience. I'm not God. I can't determine when they're going to get sober. Sobriety is a gift from God. Um, it's really willingness, uh, and it's a gift from God when I'm willing. Nobody's going to say that I'll be sober tonight or tomorrow. I'm just willing right now to be sober, and that's what I try to focus on is to focus on the now because any fear of the future all that is is trying to control it 
and any regret for the past is all that is is trying to change it. So all of that has to be set aside so that I can focus on the now. As long as we can focus on the now, it's amazing. The other thing that I give people is a breathing exercise. You know, when I'm getting ah, all hyper, breathing helps. I should have used it Thursday, uh, Saturday night, but I went to a meeting instead. And then I was breathing again. So thanks. What do you require from a sponsee in order to take them on as a sponsee? What do you require? Ah, requirements. Well, requirements are something, something that, uh, that some people uh, put into place. I ask people to call me every day. And I give them assignments to do. Um, if they're brand new to the program, I give them a, an exercise that my alcohol, uh, alcoholic friend up in Seattle gave me before I had a sponsor. And she wasn't trying to sponsor me. She just said, well, this is what I do with my sponsees. And it's called the 10, 15, 20 exercise. 10 ways in which I am powerless over love. 15 ways in which I try to control and manage lust and 20 ways in which my life is unmanageable because of lust. And, uh, you know, if a sponsee can't get through 10, 15, and 20, they're probably not ready. And I let them know. And if they want to continue working, that's great. I'll still give them exercises. And over a period of time, they eventually stop doing the work. And they'll either drift to another person or another program or drift out. And uh, all I can do is pray for them. So I give people assignments and specific things to do. And if they don't get them done, we put them back on the board to do them. And we just keep doing, going that little merry-go-round. Do you require them to give up um, their, let's say they had some friends. Um, do you require them to give them all up before you will sponsor them? Give up, give up all their what? They're f friends that were acting out partners, acting, whatever. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Partners. I mean, uh, again, I can't require <laughs> I'm not God. I'm not their father. <laughs> no, I'm old enough. I'm not their father. I'm not their brother. I'm not their wife or husband. I can't require anything. I can suggest. And so I suggest. And uh, sometimes it's painful for them to do. But I use my own example. When I got into the program, I deleted every number that was in my phone. And when somebody, the guy that I was really going to divorce my wife and get married to when I came into the program, when he contacted me, I told her. I said, you know, he's contacted me. And, I, and I, all I did was I sent him in the website for Sexaholics Anonymous. And I never heard from him again. And... Uh, but I told her that, and I told my sponsor, and I talk about it. You know, get rid of that. I can't control them contacting me, but what I can do is lead by example. When they contact me, I tell on myself, and I tell that it's happened, and I, I ask them not to contact me anymore. But absolutely, get rid of all the telephone numbers. Get rid of all the email accounts. I closed down five different email. I'm pointing to my other screen, as you can see clearly, right? Uh, I closed down <laughs> all my other email accounts where I was having various different parties contact me, right? For all the different websites. I closed out all the websites and all the memberships that I was in, all the sex sites and all of the hookup sites and all that stuff. Uh, I got rid of all that. 
because I knew, I knew I would go back to it. And I knew that I wanted a better life. So until my sponsee knows that they want a better life, they may not do that. And they'll continue to bump their butts along the rocky road. Um, you mentioned a couple of times about how you're powerless. You realize that you're powerless not over the actions, but over the lust. And it sounded like there's some, some special urgency to that. Like what would happen if I, if I thought I'm powerless only over the actions? Can you like explain that a little bit more? Well, if I'm powerless over the actions, then I'm powerful over them too. In other words, I have to take actions. This is an action program. I have to decide the action to take. And if I'm in charge of my actions, I will choose the wrong ones if I'm not letting go of lust. Because I will think, well, I can just go and look for that tattoo. See, that's an action that I took. I can take the action. I could take the actions of saying, you know what? That email account, I never really acted out with anybody, and, and I kind of like that guy, and someday I'll be able to help him, so I won't close down that email account. That's lust. It's not an action or a lack of action. That's lust. There's a big difference between actions and lust. This is not a program of solving our actions and changing our actions and getting well. This is a program of powerlessness over lust. We will go back out there if I don't get something between me and lust. The only thing that's the same thing that Bill Wilson writes about in the big book. He, he's going to drink again unless he gets something between him and alcohol. And the only thing that can stand between him and alcohol is God as he understands God. I hope that clarifies it or Makes it money, or maybe I don't know. But you spoke about your uh, tattoo escapade for in, in your fourth year of, of recovery and sobriety. Um, I wonder if you had a word about um, you know perfectionism and guilt and shame when when our recovery and sobriety isn't a hundred percent perfect. I speak for myself. Everyone else here is perfect, but mine isn't perfect. So. I just, <laughs> I think that speaks to your perfectionism. Uh, <laughs> you might want to give that up. Um, perfectionism, perfectionism is a mental disease because I'm thinking I'm God. The what, the, what differentiates God from me is that he never confuses himself with me. <laughs> I often confuse myself with God. I often think that I need to do things exactly right. No, 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 no. I can take that phrase and drop the last two words. I need to do things, period. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of exactly right, right? But I'm going to add a word in there. I need to do the right things, period. So when they say, do the next right thing, that's all that's necessary. Um, there is no perfectionism. When I started working on my fourth step, I thought, well, is it this or is it that? I mean, I see this and 
my friend in Seattle gave me that, and this this is a this is a method, and that's a method. And you know what? The wrong method is to not do it, not to be so par- to be so paralyzed that I don't do the work. That's that's that what uh, perfectionism does. It's a character defect, and it just it's not necessary. I'm a human being. God made humans frail. We are frail. If I'm willing to accept that I'm imperfect, then the fact that I get ready to explode at my wife on Saturday night, if I hear her grating voice one more minute, is just, I'm imperfect, you know? And I need to do the next right thing. And amazingly, everything falls into place when I do that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ken. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.